Well, let's just study God's Word for just a little bit. I know you've heard a lot today and you've listened and, and uh, I don't want to indulge in you too much. But let's look at a passage of Scripture tonight that will help us pray. Because we're going to pray in a little bit. And what this passage does is it gives us a sense of our own inadequacy, which we don't really want to know. But at the same time, we realize our own inadequacy. We also realize the greatness and the mercy of God. And I don't know about you tonight, but I need a fresh sense of the mercy and great and and faithfulness of God. Um, I, I need a fresh dose of God's mercy in my life. And we know he's very generous with it. We don't want to ever take that for granted. Uh, but we certainly love it when he pours it out, don't we? It's great when God just pours out his mercy in our lives. And some of, some of us need that tonight. Some of us need a fresh outpouring of God's mercy in our lives. And I don't mean that critically or judgmentally at all. I, I have no idea who needs what in this room. But I do believe that um, some of us in this room are abounding tonight, and some of us are struggling. Some of us are doing great and walking with the Lord, and things are super, and others of us uh, may be just kind of, and, and, and I don't, I'm not doing well, and I'm struggling, and I'm discouraged and depressed. And I mentioned this morning in the service, I just felt like there was something in the room that was just kind of, it, it just was heavy. There was just a... There was a sense this morning that things were right, so I was glad we had tonight so I can come back and feel better. But all of us have ebbs and flows. All of us have ups and downs. And the mark of spiritual maturity is that the times that are down are not times that are caused by sin. And the times that are down when we go through them, that we don't react with fear, but we react with faith. The mark of spiritual immaturity is that the down times are as a result of falling back into living as our old self. That, that we create our own problems. We create our own downfalls. And we voluntarily put ourselves back into bondage to sin. And, and that usually uh, leads to selfish thinking and fear and anxiety and all the other words that we know that go along with that. So the simple ideal for us, as we know, is to be like Christ. But the simple ideal is also to progressively move on to maturity without looking back at what we did and without having moments each day where we kind of cringe and go, ooh, I shouldn't have done that. Now, Israel had a lot of cringe moments, didn't they? They had a, they had a lot of things when you look at your history, you kind of want to hide your eyes like, I can't believe you guys did that. And, and, and it is amazing to me, and I know it's true of all of our lives, but it's amazing to me how people that had so much could fail the Lord so often. And the positives are so few and far between. In fact, I tried to think last night, and I hope I haven't missed one. I, I tried to think, what were the times when Israel really, really was faithful to the Lord? And I could only come up with four. The first time was when they had the first Passover in Egypt. And they trusted God, and God said, put the, put the blood on the doorpost, and I'll pass over. And they trusted God for that. The second time was the crossing of the Jordan. You can't count the crossing of the Red Sea because they were in fear and said, oh, no, we're going to die. Moses, you stink. Why would you bring us out here? And then three hours after they crossed, they were complaining. So we can't count the Red Sea. That was all God and not them, right? So we've got Passover. We've got the crossing of the Jordan because, remember, they trust, and the priests go on before, and the water stacks up, and the people cross confidently, and they stack up the 12 rocks, and it's a beautiful time. So we've got Passover, crossing of the Jordan. The third time I came up with was Jericho. As God said, walk around the city for seven days, which seemed absurd, but they did it. And on the seventh day, they blew the trumpets, and the walls fell down, and they took the city. So that was a high point for them, the first city they conquered in the Promised Land. And then the fourth one was the dedication of the temple, which was really the, the great.
greatest point in Israel's history. Everything's right. The people are worshiping the Lord. David's the king. He's a man after God's own heart. And the people are praising God. And everything's at a high point. From the dedication of the temple, it goes downhill. Because Solomon becomes the king. And Solomon starts well. And he asks for wisdom. And then he has a thousand women, which I just can't fathom. And he starts to worship their gods, and then the kingdoms divide, and you've got good king, bad king, bad king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, good king. You know how it goes? And you've got all kinds of mess, and the people don't listen to the prophets, and it just goes crazy. There are only really four major events where their hearts were right and their faith was in the Lord. And yet you have a comparison to all the times when they didn't trust him and they acted selfishly, and that list is long. Failure to call on the Lord during four centuries of slavery. Numerous examples of fear in the wilderness. Complaining. Lack of gratitude. Hidden sin. Overt sin. Overconfidence in self. Rebellion against Moses. Corruption of each other. Rejection of the law. Bad kings that they allowed. Idol worship. You just run out of breath. Like all the different times that they absolutely failed the Lord. And what's ironic about this is the Lord had huge plans for them. God gave them every favor, and he said, I want to minister you and bless you in so many ways. It starts with my deliverance. It continues into my promised land, and I want to be your God. And they keep saying, we don't really want that, and they test him, and and they never wake up to his goodness, but instead they forget about him and neglect him. Now, nowhere is that more obvious than right here in this passage. Did I give you the text? I didn't, did I? Exodus chapter 32. Exodus chapter 32 is probably the the most depressing low in Israel's history. It is the place where they make the most horrible decisions and they just compound them one after another. Now, I believe the reason that the Lord clearly led me to this passage tonight is not to discourage us, but to challenge us to fight against four traits of disobedience that we see in this text that hinder us from faith and maturity and hinder us uh, and move us outside the will of God. The problem in Exodus 32 is so bad that Israel doesn't embrace one trait or two traits or three traits. They embrace all four. They're overachievers in this text. And it is so bad that God says, Moses, get out of the way. I want to destroy you. He wants to wipe out the nation except for Moses, and he says, I tell you what, I'm going to wipe them out. I'll make a new nation out of you. You just hang here for a second because I want you to get out of my way, and I'm going to strike all of them down. And Moses intercedes and pleads for them, and God spares them. But this is an ugly, ugly scene. All right? Let's read it, verses 1 to 9. Nope, I am in the wrong text. I am in Genesis 32, which is not going to help me at all. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, come make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And Aaron said to them, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. Then they said, listen now, this is your God, Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now, when Aaron saw this, 
he built an altar before it. This is the high priest, by the way. This is the senior pastor. He built an altar to the calf, and he made a proclamation saying, tomorrow will be a day of feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The Lord said to Moses, go down at once, for your people who you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They've made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, this is your God, Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I've seen this people and behold, they're an obstinate people. Now here's Moses after 40 days on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, having been having told the people before he went, God has very specific instructions. You need to consecrate yourselves for three days. You need to wash yourself in preparation. Nobody goes near the mountain. Don't touch the mountain. Don't let your animals touch the mountain because it's holy and you'll die. Then he goes up. The Lord gives him the law, including what's summarized in the Ten Commandments. He gives them instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And, and he says, I'm going to be present among you. Here's how you make the building. I'm going to be there. He's even seen the back of God as God passes by him. And God puts his hand out and covers Moses' eyes. And as he pulls his hand away, Moses sees the back of God. This, this has been beyond amazing what he has experienced. And now he gets this news. Something awful is going on downstairs. Something really bad is happening. And I tried to imagine how disheartening that was to him. How he must have felt after 40 days. Can you imagine? In the presence of God. Every time he met with the Lord, his face just glowed. And he hears this news. And, and, and they didn't even bother to get to commandment five. They just started with the first one. You will have no other gods before me and make no graven images. That's exactly what they did. And it's not like God's going to let this slide because he says, I'm going to destroy them now. Now, this is a shocking turn of events, but it's not particularly surprising. And yet it's very, very sobering. How could the people ignore that thick cloud that was engulfing the top of the mountain? How could they ignore the lightning and the thunder and the trembling of the mountain that was there every day? And more importantly, and this is something that movies like the Ten Commandments get wrong. Because if we study chapter 20, when Moses and the people get the Ten Commandments, Moses is with them. He's not up on the mountain. You remember the old Charlton Heston thing, and he's hiding against the rock, you know, classic Charlton Heston with the cloak and this. And we see the, the wonderful sound effects, uh, the digital effects from the 60s, like, and the, and the fire is riding the stone. That's not how it happened. Because if you look at the text, Moses went down with the people and God spoke the Ten Commandments. And then Moses went back up because the people were so terrified at the voice of God that they said, you got to go up for us. We can't handle this. So all of them heard the Ten Commandments. This was not just God and Moses and the people didn't have any idea what was going on. They heard what was going on. And to top it all off, the Lord gave Moses extra instructions saying right before he went back up, make sure the people understand, don't make any idols. Don't make anything out of gold and silver. Don't craft anything. 
And by the way, the only altars and sacrifices are for me. Now, do you think it's possible that the people didn't get the message? Do you think it's possible that they could have misunderstood? Of course not. And yet they were so caught up in the fact that they had a major eye problem. Their problem was themselves. Their problem was that they loved themselves. And they do four things that I want to show you very briefly. We'll take about two minutes on each one. They do four things in chapter 32 that serve as warning signals to us. These are things that should be a check in our spirit. When we see these things in our lives or when somebody says them to us out of love as a brother or sister in Christ, we need to to have a check in our heart and say, "Uh uh-oh, wait a second, the Lord's telling me something that I need to change. There are very significant spiritual principles in this text, and I just want to touch on them tonight. But the overriding question that I have here is, why, what, what caused them to resist the Lord and to take such a drastic step of defiance? They've been released. They've gone through the wilderness. God's brought them to Sinai. They've heard the Ten Commandments. They see the presence of God. Moses goes up. Why did they take this step? And as we look at that, what does the Lord want to say to us tonight, to you? Okay, number one, the first trait that they showed, this is in verse one, is impatience. Anybody else struggle with that one besides me? Impatience. As I said this morning, I, and we've talked about tonight, after Thursday night, I think some of us were, were very, very eager to, to say maybe there's a building. And I love that passion. I, I think that's great, and I think we need to be praying about it. But as we know with the Lord that we've said tonight, We always have to seek and discern the Lord's direction first. We've had a lot of buildings we've looked at. I've looked at property. I've prayed over property. I've been impressed by the Lord on some things, and God's closed every door. Now, we can rush into something, or we can do what the Lord wants us to do. And we know which one's going to be better, right? So we have to wait on Him. But notice what it says in the text. It says in verse 1, when the people saw that Moses was delayed, in other words, Here's, here's, what the, here's what they're saying at the base of the mountain. Sure has taken Moses a long time to get those instructions from God. How, why are blueprints taking so long for the tabernacle? I mean, seriously, it's been 40 days. I mean, come on. Where's our leader? What's going on? What, what, this, this is too long. We can't wait on the Lord anymore. I mean, we're a progressive people. We got a lot to do. We can't be inconvenienced. We need to get going. I had lunch with Pastor Toledo the other day, and he told me a quote from his daughter, Annie, who's 18. And I thought it was an amazing observation that she made about her, peer, her peers. She said, to our generation, inconvenience is unacceptable. And I just sat back on my chair. I said, that is unbelievably profound. To our generation, inconvenience is unacceptable. How much does that creep into our hearts? When the Bible says in Psalm 37, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. And yet we say, I don't want to. I'm impatient. I've told you guys many times, I'm an impatient person. You drive with me, you will learn that. I'll be on good behavior, but I I am an impatient person. One of the worst mistakes that we can make is when we decide that we can't wait for God's leading. One of the worst mistakes you will ever make in your life is when you say, I can't wait for God's leading. Sometimes when there's a delay, 
if things aren't happening as quickly as we want them to or what or, or when we want them to we start to think God's not going to do anything about it because we have such a limited understanding of what God has planned but lamentations 3 says the Lord is good to those who wait for him make that your verse this week the Lord is good to those who wait for him now the people in Exodus 32 didn't care about that in fact they're so eager to to precipitate what's going to happen next that they literally tear off the rings and the earrings and the chains to make this cap. And I looked up the word because I had never really looked at it before. It means to rip off or even break off. They were so eager for self-gratification that they didn't even take the time to get the backing off the earring. They just ripped it out. Or they just tore the necklace off, broke it, and just threw it down at Aaron's feet and said, here, get on with it. Make the calf. Come on, we're ready. Give us something because Moses isn't coming back. And yet, the Lord had called them to wait. Sometimes God calls you and me to wait if for no other reason than to develop our faith and to realize that he is faithful. We know he's going to work and we know that his ways are better than ours. So it's never good to be anxious. It's always good to wait on his timing. Now look at the second trait. They showed an insistence on the tangible. They insisted that the invisible wasn't good enough. They wanted the tangible. They were so preoccupied. Sorry about that. They were so preoccupied with what was visible that they wanted visible gods. They said all the other nations have these really cool gods, Dagon and Baal and all these other. We, we want gods like that. Come on, Aaron. Give us something. You're the priest. We, we don't want to, we don't see God. Yeah, we see the cloud and the thunder and that's great and all that, but, but we want a God we can touch. Nowhere is there a mention of the Lord when they make their decision because they're only focused on what's visible and tangible and material. And if it doesn't matter to you what the Lord's doing and you want something now, that's going to be a bad position impatience breeds an annoyance with what's invisible. When suddenly faith isn't clear enough and we start to say, we need some other solutions. And in the case of the people, they start asking where Moses is. Now they've been annoyed with Moses for a while, right? They, they didn't exactly give Moses a good time. At the first trouble, they said, you brought us out here to die. Let's go back. And when they don't like how things are going, they let's replace him. Oh, go. You know, you see the crowd with the pitchforks and the torch. Let's get him, you know. That, that's how they constantly were with Moses. They never yielded to Moses. Said, Moses, you are wonderful. You're so patient. We're sorry you have to walk for 40 years because we're a bunch of jerks. But no, Moses, you, you just lead us. We'll follow you. We know you're listening to God. You're meeting with us. They never say that to God. And then they make this absurd statement. We don't know what happened to him. They know good and well what happened to him. Where is Moses? He's up on the mountain. Who's he meeting with? He's meeting with God. Uh, this is not brain surgery here, okay? This is Moses is meeting with God, but, but they can't figure it out. And they don't have the patience, and they don't know what's going on, so they say, let's find another answer. Let's, let's get our own solution. Moses isn't meeting our desires, so let's do our own thing. I heard a pastor say the other day, just because you don't know what's going on doesn't mean God's not on his throne. That's a good word. Just because you can't figure it out doesn't mean God's not in charge. He tells us and shows us his ways are not ours. 
His thoughts and plans are not ours. They're better. His timing is not ours. It's better. And I have found in my life and in my ministry that some of the greatest blessings that I've been given by the Lord come out of times when I had no clue what was going on. And God said, here, I'm going to show you. We're called to have trust and confidence in the Lord. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, it's in the evidence of things that are not seen. It's in what's invisible. So don't be one of those people as a believer that says, I've always got to know what's happening. I've always got to have a hand in it. I've got to deal with what's visible because that's not faith. That's control. Number three, quickly. You're listening almost too well. Impatience and insistence on the tangible then lead to the third thing. And the third thing is irrational thinking. Irrational thinking. Now, verse four would really be one of the funniest verses in the Bible if it wasn't so incredibly tragic. In verse 4, they take the items and they make a golden calf. And then they say, this is what brought us out of Egypt. It is so illogical and so incomprehensible and so ridiculous that it almost defies the mind that they can say it with a straight face. How in the world is the God they just created what brought them out of Egypt. They had just watched it be developed. So where was it when they got through the Red Sea? Did, did I miss a couple of verses in my study? Have I not, have I not seen what's here? I, I don't find anywhere in the text where when they were standing at the Red Sea and the Egyptians are here and God puts fire, that some golden calf miraculously appeared you know, on, on the beach. Like, go this way and blew wind out of its mouth and the seas parted. Oh, yes, the golden calf got us here. Really? Is it the one that sent the plagues? Never mind the last 400 years. Never mind the fact that you couldn't get out of Egypt until you called on the Lord. Never mind the details. Don't let them sway you. Don't let the facts influence you in any way, shape, or form at this point. There's so much irrational thinking. And then... Aaron, the high priest, the brother of Moses, who, by the way, is meeting with the Lord. Aaron, who's been left to safeguard the people and strengthen them spiritually. As Moses is getting on instructions on the mountain on what to do with Aaron and how to anoint him and how his sons are going to be used in the tabernacle. As all that's happening, God is already seeing the spiritual leader of the nation, so to speak, as he's taking the rings from the people and graving them with, with, a, with a tool and burning and building this golden calf. God's seeing all that as he's saying to Moses, now here's how Aaron and his sons are going to lead in the tabernacle. And then, without hesitation, without remorse, look at the thing that he does in verse 5. As they say, this is our God. This is the one who brought us out of Egypt. Aaron then builds an altar. It's like he's starting a new religion. But that's not even the worst offense. What really makes the Lord angry is in verse 6. In, uh, excuse me, in verses 5 and 6. What really makes the Lord angry is that Aaron then says, there's going to be a feast tomorrow. Think about that. They had all night to think about what they were doing. He says, there's a feast tomorrow. And we are going to make a feast for the Lord, but it's going to be in front of this golden calf 
we're now worshiping and burning offerings to his God. Is there not some point in Aaron's laying in his tent that night, first of all, where his wife beat him and said, what are you thinking? And second of all, where he woke up and said, this is wrong. This is stupid. We're going to worship the Lord in front of the calf that I helped built, disobeying the first commandment, and we've burnt sacrifices to. We're going to mix those two things. That's what offended God. And then, just to add to it, there's excessive drinking, and there's sexual flirting, and there's immorality going on, because when you see it says, rose up to play, that they start to take off their clothes. And they start to dance around and they start to do all sorts of, uh, of awful things in front of this golden calf. And God says to Moses, get back. Get back. The people essentially have lost their minds. And this is the last trait. In verse 9, God says they're insolent. They're obstinate people. Both words mean stubborn and offensive and disrespectful and someone who refuses to listen. Listen, there, there is a difference between doubt and fear and worry, which we know the Lord doesn't love, but there's a huge difference between doubt and fear and worry and not listening. There's a difference between, Lord, I'm, I'm scared and I'm nervous and I don't know what to do and, and I'm just I'm filled with anger. There's a difference between that and, God, I will not Listen to you. You never, ever want to be in a position of stubborn defiance with the Lord. And even in subtle ways, because that's when the Lord's discipline gets very serious. How do we know when insolence is happening? We know it when we stop being teachable. We start to be critical and judgmental and cynical and dissatisfied, and we're not self-aware of it. And we have to evaluate and really ask the Spirit at that time to cleanse us. Now that goes against being obstinate. That, that goes against being not teachable. But we, when we see ourselves being stubborn and obstinate with the Lord, we have to go to Him and say, Lord, remove it. Maybe it's a certain sin that you're holding on to. Lust or jealousy or, or anger or, or, or laziness or filling your life with too much stuff at the expense of walking with the Lord. I don't know what it is. It doesn't matter. Whatever it is, it needs to be gotten rid of. Because I don't think we realize how many things are really rooted in self and not in the Lord. And we're holding on to them like there's some inalienable right that I've got to be able to be jealous. I've got to be able to be angry. It's just who I am. And I'm impatient and you can't do anything about it because I, I, I'm Irish. And, 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 I, and you just, you don't know my life situation. I'm allowed to worry. No, actually you're not. We hold on to these things like, like it's, it's our ordained lot in life that we have to be controlled by those things. And God says, I freed you from it. So when we spot these four things, we need to ask the Lord to remove them. We need to say to the Lord, put them out of commission. Get them out of my thoughts and out of my actions and remove them. Now we're going to take time. I'm done. Thank you for listening so well. We're going to take time to pray about this as we close. And each of us is going to spend some time in the Lord. And, and if one of these things has really hit you tonight and it's really impressed you that that's what you need to, to confess, Lord, I want you to do that. And as 
we're starting to pray. I'm just going to put some little pieces of paper on the end of each row. And, and when you get done praying, just pass them down. I want you to circle on these little pieces of paper the one of those four that you're struggling with the most tonight. Don't put your name on it. I don't need your name. The only reason I'm asking you to do this is I want to know how to pray for this congregation in a better way. And I want to know what we're struggling with. Because you guys have been faithful to show up tonight, and yet I'm not uh, dumb enough to, to think that none of us are struggling with these things because I know I'm struggling with some of them. So I'm just going to ask you, when you're done praying, get that card, circle it, fold it up, and you can just leave it on this table or on your chair or whatever when you leave, and I'll collect it, okay? But let's take time right now to pray. Let's go before the Lord, just you and the Lord, and talk to the Lord about what you've heard tonight and what he needs to do in your life. Lord, we're so grateful to you for the fact that you are patient with us. I can't understand, Father, how you could tolerate Israel's rebellion for so long and how you could spare just removing all of them when they rebelled so strongly against you. And yet, Lord, every single day you do that for us. You show us patience and compassion and kindness and grace that we don't deserve. Even as your children, as we rebel against you, you're still kind to us. And Lord, I thank you for that tonight. And I pray that as you have challenged each of us with the one area that we are really not doing well in, that we're struggling with, maybe it's really obvious and Lord, maybe it's very subtle. But I pray that you'll continue to work in our lives and show us how we can yield to you in fresh ways and how we can serve you as your faithful children. Lord, the last thing we want to do with you is be stubborn and resistant. So we ask you to continue to remind us every day of how good you are to us and that our hearts would be soft and sensitive toward you and praise you for who you are. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time that we've had tonight. What a blessing to be in your presence. Thank you, Lord, for each person that's made an effort to come out, for those that have helped with our kids. Lord, we just praise you for what you've done today. We pray you'd continue to encourage and strengthen us throughout this week as we serve you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for being here. Don't leave, if you would, before. Would you help me with pastors out? Just... Um, Make sure, if you don't mind, if you don't want to, it's okay. This is not a test or anything, but I just really felt uh, led that I wanted to know better what you're struggling with and how to pray for you. So um, just circle one, or if you want, circle two, and um, fold it up so nobody else sees it, and then just put it up on the table or leave it on your chair either way, okay? Thank you for being here tonight. What a good crowd. I hope this has been an encouragement to you. And uh, let's continue to serve the Lord this week, right? Let's see what the Lord does about this whole building thing. I'm kind of anxious to see what's coming up now, aren't you? It'd be, be exciting to know what he wants. And if he wants us here, great, because uh, we're having a ministry here at the Marriott. I, I think God's really uh, using this in a lot of ways, okay? Thank you guys for being here tonight. God bless you.